The Lord is our helper. He brings renewal to the defeated. I wonder if you felt defeat in your life of faith as of late. I expect that any of us who've been Christians for longer than 20 minutes would be very quick to answer yes to that question. Have you, have you experienced defeat in your life of faith? Or to put it another way, uh, in your Christian life, have you personally known what it's like to have the truth about God in you, but live in contrary ways to that truth, even with significantly damaging results? And then maybe, uh, to put it a little, uh, push it a little further, on the other side of those experiences or seasons of life, a distance from God, have you wondered if the fullness of what God has promised to us in the Christian life is no longer really there for you? Uh, think, think of Israel's experience over these last few chapters in 1 Samuel. Israel is a people uh, presumed arrogantly upon God back in chapter 4. We remember that story. And as a result, they were completely defeated by the Philistines. Uh, so much so that their main priests were killed and, and thousands upon thousands, 34,000 in total of their fighting men uh, were killed. And then with that, the Ark of the Lord, so the symbol of God's presence among them, that was taken uh, outside of Israel, that was taken away. And then as we know from other places in Scripture, like from the prophet Jeremiah, on the tales of that defeat from the Philistines, they also decimated Shiloh. So they, they destroyed the place of worship that was central for God's people. Then into chapter 6, when the Ark finally was returned, instead of residing in a priestly city like we would expect, it actually had to be uh, kept in a city full of Gibeonites of all people, just so everyone around the ark in Israel would stop dying. Okay. So, so, so what uh, has Israel's life of faith experience been in these last chapters? Well, it's actually been one of embracing sin and experiencing total defeat. That's what their spiritual life has been like. That they have persisted in sin against God, and as a result, their spiritual life, and actually their physical life, really the totality of their life, for that matter, has been one of total shambles. In fact, their lives as a people are in shambles to such a degree that it seems pretty unrecoverable at this point. Uh, so because of their sin, they've made a shipwreck of all of this stuff. They're defeated. The wholeness of life with God in the land of promise seems to pretty much be a loss. We even note from the end of this chapter that territories that should have been there have been captured. Things are going very badly for them. They're at this extraordinary spiritual low because of their persistent sin. Now, as we think about that context, maybe, maybe our own experience hasn't been quite that devastating. Maybe it has, but, but probably we haven't had, had Philistines knocking down our doors lately. But as we review the Israelites' condition here, it can resonate at some level because we can reflect on seasons of our own Christian lives as believers where sin has been overwhelming to us. Maybe where the external pressures have, have pulled us away from trusting in God in such a way, and then the internal uh, temptations to sin have seemed to overrun us. That pride has taken root and left us thinking that we're actually fine on our own and we can pull this off. And if I need God for anything, I need Him more uh, for maybe a magic rabbit's foot if something hard comes up like the Philistine or like the Israelites thought uh, back in chapter 4. Maybe I need that, but by all accounts, uh, you know, I, I've been doing good. I can handle it. I can hold things together. And here I am uh, now in this season of significant um, discouragement and despair. Uh, by all accounts, we can face seasons of life as believers where it seems like the life of flourishing faith has been replaced by a defeated life uh, surrounded by sin and darkness and all manner of things uh, that bring us to this place of realizing uh, we're more experiencing a kind of spiritual defeat 
then we are engaged in a kind of gospel progress like we would have otherwise expected or at least like to be engaged in. So, So it's very probable that most, if not all of us, have had some experience of that kind of defeated sensation in our life. And a passage like this comes to us with extraordinary hope this morning. Because in a passage like this, we see a regular process. And that word we're using there is purposeful. There's a process that's reflected in this passage that God brings His people through as He helps them move from a place of defeated sorrow ultimately to a place of restoration and peace as He helps them. So, so today we focus on the God who helps, like we said. More precisely, we see, we see the process He helps bring us through in this text as He moves us from places of defeat then to uh, places of, of renewal, places of restoration. So, so we have this process unfolding in the narrative today that can be uh, not only useful for us just in a practical way as we consider our gospel living, but it can also be very defining for us as we seek to discern maybe where we're at in our own spiritual uh, condition at the moment. And so, uh, we're going to look at verses 2 to 14 of this chapter, like I said, and, uh, and as always, it'll be good to follow along. So if you haven't turned there yet, you can turn there now. And we're going to begin uh, thinking about this, this renewal that the Lord is going to work as, as a process. We're going to begin, first of all, by reflecting on uh, Israelites' posture of longing that's there in verse 2. Longing is going to be the, the first uh, part of the process. Um, and so verse 2, we'll just read that again so it's, it's fresh for us. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath-Jerim. Then the whole, council of it, the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. The whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. So when we start reading here in verse 2, we see right away that time has passed. Now, um, for, for those who like to study these things, there is some question about how the 20 years referenced here is to be understood. Uh, there's, there's some translation question, which we won't get into, but, but, but the, the question is something like, does the 20 years that have passed reflect how long the ark was in Kiriath-Jerim until David shows up in 2 Samuel 6 to, to take it? Is that what the 20 years is pointing to? Or is the 20 years how much time has passed since the ark was, was brought there uh, and, until the events of this passage have taken place? Last week I thought it was David. This week after studying, I think it's maybe the other one. But these, these, the, what we know is that's not the significant question of the text. The main thing that we read as we get into this text, while views on that matter may vary, whatever the case is, clearly uh, the text is indicating that between the events that we looked at last week where the ark was returned by the Philistines Uh, Between that event and the events we're considering here, uh, the grammar of the passage does make it clear that time has passed. So a significant amount of time has has gone by. And with the passage of time, we see how Israel's posture toward the Lord has significantly changed. Uh, Prior to this, in both chapter 4 and chapter 6, we saw that Israel's attitude toward the Lord was primarily one of indifference and uh, irreverence. That's how Israel has been postured toward God up until this point. Israel presumed upon the Lord in that ark incident back in chapter 4. and chapter 6, the ark was returned, uh, but we saw how they still failed to treat the ark as they should. Now there was that irreverence that was present. And in all that, again, they, they they were very defeated as a result. They were defeated by the Philistines. They were defeated by God. Sin always leads towards death. And they were brought to this low condition of rebellion. But, but now in verse 2, things have changed. In fact, it's kind of an abrupt, it's a dramatic change that takes place here in verse 2. Uh, because now uh, we're told that Israel is longing for the Lord. 
Or if you're reading from the ESV, it says they're lamenting after the Lord. So, so, so they're, uh, as a people group, they're in this condition of, of concerned reorientation toward uh, the God of Israel. So, so instead of indifference, instead of irreverence, there's this posture of, of contrition, this posture of turning again toward the Lord in their, in their concern. And if we're going to think well about this changed condition of, of longing after the Lord that's present here, our immediate uh, question has to be, what changed? What, what, what made the difference? What, what happened to them? And, and really, the only answer we can, we can immediately give from the text is that what happened is time passed in their condition of defeat. Time went by in their condition of defeat. The years went by and Israel wallowed in the destruction of, of Shiloh, like we read about later in Jeremiah 7 and 26. They, they lost their priests, who weren't much good anyway. They, they lost a total of 34,000 fighting men. You just think of that impact on the, on the community of Israel. The ark was lost, now returned, but kept in this Gibeonite city, which is just strange. Idolatry is rampant. It's been a lot of years of things being very dark and sin-indulged, and, and at the end of the day, defeated, this posture of defeat for Israel. And according to the text, the difference between their posture of irreverence toward God and earlier in earlier chapters, and now this existence of a longing for God, the difference between irreverence and longing is time passing in this condition of defeat. Time's gone by. And from their place of defeat, they're now turning to the Lord. They're now longing for the Lord and the life that can only come from Him. And that's just an interesting thing to reflect on for us. Uh, maybe this kind of, of catalyst for change has been something you've experienced. That there may be seasons of life where you're distant from God. Seasons even like for Israel here where we're living in, in significant disobedience to God in one way or another. But then all of a sudden, and it can almost startle us like it's abrupt in our text here. Time goes by, we've continued in our sin, but all of a sudden something changes. And the, and the life of, of spiritual sorrow and defeat and distance and all these kinds of things we've been living, all of a sudden, it becomes like this bad taste in our mouth and our hearts become bothered by, by, by where this disregard for the Lord has taken us. The sinful practices have taken their, their deep and harmful toll, whatever it might be. Time goes by and what happens? Well, we find ourselves starting to long for the Lord. We long for renewed communion with God. We long to be at peace with Him. We long to, to embrace the life He saved us to live. We long to honor Him instead of indulging ourselves. Time passes in the condition of sin's defeat, and we start to lament our distance from God, which is something we just need to recognize as part of the process of moving from, from a kind of spiritual defeat to spiritual renewal. It's part of the process, especially if we're experiencing a season of defeat. At the, at the moment, we can know this is true. The Lord, He's the Lord of time, and He uses time. He makes use of time. Even, even as we persist in our sin, He brings us to a point, like we sang this morning, of feeling our need for Him in the context of time passing. He brings us through time to a point of longing, to a point of sorrow over the fact that we're distanced from Him by the, by the behaviors we've been engaged in or whatever it might be. Time has passed in Israel, and now longing has begun. And then this is the Lord's doing. The Lord uses the passage of time in our own lives for this purpose. We can probably reflect on, on certain seasons of being quite low in our life, but the Lord has ultimately used those times to do what? Leave us alone wallowing and languishing? Or what does He use those times for? Ultimately, He uses those times to draw us back to Him. 
draw us back to Him. At the very least, what do we discover in those times is that we feel like God is far from us. And we have to recognize that in the sense of feeling like God is far from us, there can sometimes be no greater evidence that God is near to us. It's His active engagement in our lives that makes us feel our need for Him. And He uses time to bring us to those, to those places. And not, not just in our lives, but He uses time in the lives of others as well, which is just easy to forget. I'm just speaking directly to myself here, but so often, especially maybe with people we love the most or close friends or family members, when we see them in spiritually destitute places, it's so easy to be impatient, isn't it? We want to rush the process. We wonder, doesn't the Lord see their lives and what's happening? Why doesn't He intervene and and change their hearts? What we tend to do is want to rush the process. I tend to want to rush the process. We don't like time to pass. But a text like this reminds us, the Lord who crushes um, Dagon's in the temple, He's also the Lord of time. And He makes use of it in the lives of His people for their ultimate benefit. So, So this time goes by, and from a defeated position, what does Israel do? Well, they begin to long. They long for, they lament after the Lord. They feel their need for Him. So, so longing, that's, that's first in this process of, of moving from defeat to renewal. Longing is first. And then as the text goes on, we move uh, from the verse 2 longing to now returning in verses 3 to 6. So this process of the Lord's help in our lives uh, moves us from a longing then to a returning. Uh, it's one thing to desire change, isn't it? Uh, but in the Christian life, we need to be careful how we categorize and deal with the desire. Uh, It's one thing to desire change, but it's another thing, by God's help, to actually engage in that change. Uh, So often in the Christian life, we can confuse a desire for faithfulness with the actual activity of faithfulness. Uh, So for example, maybe I'm very willing and and familiar with, with longing for a renewed life of faith before the Lord. I lament the fact maybe that I've been distanced from Him, my sin saddens me, and so on. But then, because I have that longing in my heart, which is genuine and true, a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart, because I have that longing in my heart, I actually confuse that longing for a faithful posture before the Lord. It's almost like longing for the Lord, a desire for faithfulness is a permission slip to excuse me for for actually some of my unfaithful living that I'm engaged in. Because after all, I do want to move closer to the Lord. I, I, I want to know the Lord. I want to pursue Him. The desire is there. But we can count that I want to be faithful to God for actually being faithful to God. It's an easy thing to do. In these instances, the longing is seen as a kind of working substitute for actually returning, a substitute for actual repentance. And, and, and so we're, we're helped here to see that a longing for God on the part of distraught Israel, this longing isn't the end. It's not the, the longing in isolation that's here, but instead it's longing followed by genuine returning. Or repentance, that's the word that's going to be there in verse 3. The Hebrew word is shuv, and I don't know why it sticks with me, but shuv sounds like a repenting, a turning kind of word, doesn't it? You shuv, shuv, shuv is the the word. It's a turning, it's a repenting, it's a, I was going in this direction and now I'm going to go in this opposite direction instead. And and this starts to be worked out for us there in verse 3, where Samuel shows up on the scene Uh, For the first time since chapter 4, verse 1, actually. We haven't seen Samuel. We haven't heard from him for a while. Uh, But evidently, and this is one of those indicators of the passage of time, evidently, he's well into his prophetic ministry now. 
So we last left him as a, as a, as a little boy who, who grew up ultimately to have his word come to Israel. Now we see that he's in, his, he's in his prophetic ministry. And in the context of Israel's longing for God, Samuel speaks to them. And he speaks to them about a wholehearted turning, a wholehearted returning in verse 3. He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, actually in the Hebrew text, with all your heart is out there first, which emphasizes it. Here's the big thing. With my whole heart, if you're returning to the Lord with your whole heart, Get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only Him. Then He will rescue you from the Philistines. So so this wholehearted returning to the Lord becomes very connected here to two, we can call it two, two main realities and then one significant outcome. Two realities that Samuel brings up and one significant outcome. The first reality is a negative one. The Israelites need to get rid of their idols. So so over time, and we know this uh, just from reading our Bibles, part of Israel's sin is they've made provision for Baal. We read his name actually down in verse 4. Baal and the Ashtoreth. Baal was the Canaanite god of weather. The Ashtoreth was uh, the Canaanite goddess of war. Um, But the Israelites have brought these local idols into their own worship practices. So returning to the Lord is a matter of getting rid of those things that, that people are trusting in and indulging in which are contrary to God. All that's contrary to God must go in in a return to the Lord. That's the first reality. It's it's a negative one. We've got to get stuff gone. Things things need to leave. And then the second reality is positive. Samuel tells them that they must set their hearts on the Lord, worship Him only, and so on. So so they need to to orient themselves in their lives in such a way that that honors the Lord and ultimately yields to Him and and trusts in Him. So there's this negative and positive side to it. Negative, get rid of those things that are contrary to God, that are drawing you away from Him, that you're trusting in instead of Him, all of those kinds of things. And instead, you're shoving now, you're turning, and you're going back to all of these things that reflect faithfulness to God, this life of worship, this life of faithful service, honoring the Lord in all that you do. That's what's, that's what's called for here. And then the outcome of all this is, is their life of, of present defeat before the Philistines will come to an end. So the Lord will bring them deliverance as they turn to Him and His way. There's going to be rescue from from Philistine oppression. So so victory instead of defeat is reflected here. Uh, So so we see this returning to the Lord, even as we reflect on it. It's never just a one-sided program. And we can think about it that way sometimes inadvertently in our own minds. We can think, uh, well, you know, if I'm I'm going to uh, be returning to the Lord, what I need to do is put down this stuff. There's some things I need to get rid of, the negative side. But it's not just that, and it's not just the positive side either. It's not just picking up practices that honor the Lord, but it's these two things together, which we see oftentimes connected in Scripture. Paul talks about it in Colossians 3, uh, for example. Uh, what, is, what is contrary to the Lord is rejected as we simultaneously engage in what is honoring to the Lord, as we embrace those kinds of things. And as this takes place, the condition of defeat that occurs because of indulged sin will be replaced by the Lord's life-giving relief. This is one of those places in a sermon where you have to make a decision about how much to talk about certain things. I'm going to make the decision to talk about it. I'm going to try to do so with brevity. But we have to understand what's going on here in the context of Israel and the picture we're given. We have to understand that what Samuel is not saying is if you get obedient enough, then the Lord will have you as His people. 
We have to see that's not the, that's not the case. He's not saying if you get rid of this stuff and get this stuff, then the Lord is going to give you all His blessings. That's, that's, that's not the crux of what's being said here. We have to recognize Israel right now is living in the context of God redeeming them from exi- from, from, from ex- uh, in the exodus from Egypt. He's redeemed them. He's granted them His promise. They're living in the promised land. And now they're living in the context of this faith community with God. So when we read things like, if you do this, then the Philistines won't dominate you anymore. It helps us to understand this is not a tit-for-tat kind of relationship with God. He's not asking, asking them to earn some kind of blessing from Him. He's granted them his promises already they have known his redemption they've known his promise he's brought them into the land now living in the land we're being shown what wholeness can look like if we're going to live holy as god's redeemed people this stuff goes down this stuff's picked up and as a result we're going to have this flourishing existence here so that's just important to see i mean i remember reading the bible as a little boy thinking well this is god um, saying if i do enough good stuff then he'll have me if I just get this together, then he'll, he'll deliver me or whatever it might be. We need to see, while that is, there's truth to that in the context of sin that we engage in as redeemed people, this is not the big picture. The big picture is these are people blessed by God, called by God to be his people, delivered from bondage, now placed in the land of promise, all of this. And in this context, there's what we would call the sanctification work to do. As we pursue this life of holiness, rejecting what's contrary to God, he brings us from a place of defeat from enemies to this place of, 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 of victory over those things that would otherwise consume us. It's in the context of our Christian life of growth. So that's just important to say, just so we don't accidentally start to think that, that God's saying, if you do this, then I'll have you. No, He has them. They're His. He's kept His promises. Now they're operating out of that paradigm of redemption. So, so we say all that to say, um, th- this longing stage comes, first of all, in, in, the, in the context of spiritual renewal. But as the Lord is gracious to us in that longing, that then calls us to an active kind of return. And it calls us to, to a return to Him and His way, which is just so practically, uh, so practical in terms of something we can check ourselves by. It's very practical. It, it could be that in our lives we find ourselves in periods of significant spiritual drought because we've stopped at the longing and never actually engaged in the returning. So, so, so we ask ourselves, are there things in life that I, I, I'm aware of lamenting? I lament my distance from God, but now that lament needs to turn from mere lament, mere distraught, contrite, sorrow over sin and distance. Does that now need to change to an active returning where I'm negatively putting away the things that are contrary to God and positively picking up those things that look like faithful service to God in all the various contexts of service. We can review the end of Hebrews. Remember that in 13, how our whole life is a life of worship. We worship the Lord in all kinds of different ways. Do I need to be picking up Hebrews 13 kind of stuff as I'm shutting down things that are contrary uh, to, to the Lord in His way. This is a passage that allows us to check where we're at in, in, in our own lives. Maybe we're longing and we need to engage in the returning. And this is the kind of thing that, that Samuel emphasizes. Um, and, and then it is also notable here that as the Lord works on us, gives us strength for all of these kinds of things, um, we also see that this, this process isn't, isn't one to consider for a long time, this returning. You don't want to spend a lot of time pondering it. Uh, we see that in the text. Because you notice how the returning call uh, by Samuel here in verses 3 to 6 is coupled with a really immediate uh, call, to, call to action on the part of Samuel. He doesn't say, you know, let's wait uh, 
seven months and then we'll come together uh, for, this, for this assembly where we, where we demonstrate our contrition over sin and so on. No, in the rest of verses 4 to 6, he assembles Israel, he prays for them, and he oversees a day of fasting and confession. We've sinned against the Lord, they all say. So that's just important for us to note in that this returning to the Lord is not the kind of thing that's to be dragged out. We can sometimes get caught in the paralysis of analysis as we seek to return to the Lord and put off certain sins and so on. But the people long to return, and what does Samuel do? He says, yes, do that. Get rid of this stuff, and then come to this repentant ceremony. Come now. So, so, so even now, as we're speaking about this, if the compulsion to get rid of some things in your life and, and actively re-engage in what honors the Lord in certain ways, if that's pricking your heart, I guarantee the best way to ensure that no change will take place in your life is to think that you'll do something about that on Wednesday. When the call comes, when the ministry of the Holy Spirit is active and calling to us, we act. We don't want to delay. Samuel knows this. So he assembles Israel for a repentant ceremony. You're turning, you're doing these things. Now fast and confess your sins. He's saying, in effect, the turning needs to start right now. It's a very true principle of the spiritual life that, that if the Lord works through the passage of time to bring us to repentance, so also the evil one capitalizes on time to distance us from our felt need for repentance. So Samuel directs Israel in their returning and calls for this immediate demonstration of their desire to return. So, so we want to be attentive to these kinds of things in our own lives. Longing, returning, um, and then as we think through this process, uh, what, what we see next, which is something that very often follows a returning to the Lord, we see there's this experience of testing in verses 7 to 9, testing. So verses 7 to 9, we read that the Philistines heard that Israel had gathered, and then all their rulers start marching up toward Israel. So from the context we gather, the rulers are leading up this, this battle uh, group toward Israel. And, and whether the Philistines think that Israel's gathered for the purpose of fighting against them there at Mizpah, or whether the Philistines are seeing Israelites, uh, the Israelites gathered in a religious ceremony and vulnerable, so they decide now we're going to fight against them. Whichever it is, we don't know. Um, but, but all we do know is that the Philistines are coming once again. And, and what's Israel's response to that in verse 7? Uh, well, well they're, they're very afraid. The text says, verse 7, when the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines, as they should be. Because last time the Israelites uh, confronted the Philistines, they lost 30,000 soldiers in battle. The ark was captured, three main priests died, and the worship, worship center at, uh, at Shiloh was destroyed. They have logical reason for being very afraid. Israel should be terrified. And here we are, right on the heels of their professed returning to the Lord, and we wonder, what in the world are they going to do? What are they going to do? Are they going to presume upon the Lord and irreverently bring out the ark like they did back in chapter 4? Are they going to gather up the, the idols of the goddess Astra like they were just told to get rid of? She is the goddess of war after all. Are they going to gather up those Astra poles and, and pray to a Canaanite deity of war for help? They've done that in the past. What's Israel going to do? Well, uh, what they end up doing is something that shows their longing and returning posture of heart is, is proving to be true. In verse 8, the Israelites say to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. And as the Philistines no doubt continued their approach, Israel, we see here, they didn't panic and get into a battle array, but instead Samuel offered a sacrifice and cried out to the Lord on their behalf. 
I'll start putting this together. We have longing, returning, and now testing. Would the people of Israel really trust in the Lord when the pressure was on? And they did. And from this, we were reminded that in the process of, of, of God, our helper, bringing us along, we can see that absolutely this is something we can expect. When we've been far from God, as we're compelled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to return to Him, as we're given the grace to do away with what is contrary to Him and seek to faithfully serve God, as these things happen, we can experience times of testing. In fact, we should expect times of testing. And the Lord doesn't test because He hopes He'll find us to be failures. That's not, that's not how the Lord works. The Lord tests us to prove us. He tests us, uh, to use a language from Isaiah, He tests us to refine, uh, refine our gospel metal, so to speak. There's something about the process of pressure in the Christian life that no doubt can be difficult, but it can also be extremely productive. Just like in school, we know a good teacher in school only gives a test that he's prepared his students to pass. But he still gives the test because in the pressure of that testing event, you think back to the last math test you took, in the pressure of that testing event, what happens? Well, that material gets in your brain deeper, doesn't it? It just has that effect on you. Tests have the effect of making us more sturdy as we stand up under them, which, of course, James has much to say about in James chapter 1. So tests come. And in our life of faith, we should notice how tests of faith do tend to come just on the other side of positively intense spiritual experiences. This is even true when we reflect on Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Remember, Jesus was baptized by John, and in that event, the heavens opened. Jesus is, is approved by the Father. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. It's an enormously significant and, and positive, if we can put it that way, spiritual part of Jesus' earthly ministry, that baptism event. And then what's the very next thing that happens after that baptism event? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it very next thing that happens, immediately following Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tested or tempted, same Greek word. And that's what's happening here. The Philistines are coming, and that presents a context of testing for the Israelites immediately following their spiritual return to the Lord. It gives opportunity to put renewed faith into the, into the refining and productive crucible of, of under-pressure practice. And God works this way. We, we shouldn't be surprised by this kind of timing in our own lives. Often we can move through periods of intense spiritual renewal or growth or progress. And, and right around the corner then is the significant pressure that confronts us. And our first thought is what my first thought is, oh Lord, why now? Why, right, why right now? It's been a long road, I've been renewed, and, and why now would you bring such a significant pressure into my life? But we can understand it's a process of refinement for us. The Lord takes us in those times of more intense spiritual experience and He makes use of our soft heart during those times. And He makes use of our proneness to think in renewed gospel ways during those times. He takes those opportunities to solidify lessons of trust in our lives. And that's what's happening here for Israel. And this can happen for us as well. And it's important for us to know this because in times of, if, if we can put it this way, in times of returning to the Lord when we're more uh, abnormally spiritually sensitive, it can seem like hardships are God's harsh hand upon us. 
But instead, we see evidence all through Scripture that in His care for us, He's making use of these times in our life because they're rich training ground. He's bringing us further along and solidifying and and shoring up our awareness of who He is and what it really means to trust in Him. So if you find yourself in a period of of returning to the Lord and all of a sudden there's some really dark clouds, uh, you, you don't want to be discouraged. You want to be prayerful like they are here. We want to be dependent like they are here, be in close communion with other believers and be looking for, and and we need to be expecting the hand of God's progress in our life. And we do all of that from a posture, again, of absolute prayerful dependence. You see here how they ask Samuel to pray for them. Now, of course, they have a unique view of what the prophet's ministry is, a a priestly prophet kind of ministry there that that Samuel kind of mushes together. Uh, But Israel has an understanding of what that is. They need somebody to go in between for them and God. And of course, as we're going through things, we can feel our own weakness. Of course, that prayer is open to us in a unique way as New Covenant believers. We appeal to God for help in these ways, but there are times when we feel too weak for prayer. There are times when we can feel so far down, uh, we don't have that capacity to, to, to come before God and fervently bring these things to Him, maybe, that we know we need to bring to Him. And what do we do in those cases? Well, in those feelings of weakness, just like the Israelites here, we look to the better priest, we look to the better prophet who prays for us. Which is exactly what we learned about in Hebrews, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. So as we find ourselves in places of weakness, we may not be able to, 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 to put out this beautiful prayer of dependence. And, and, oh Lord, I need your restorative hand in my life. Hold me during this time of, of testing. And, and all of those wonderful things that we'd like to say. But we can get down on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, I trust that you're praying for me. I trust that you're going before the throne of grace for me. Please continue to do that because I'm struggling. <laughs> He's the one who prays on our behalf. He prays when we're too weak to stand. So we put all these kinds of things together and we see how how the Philistines are approaching for battle, which is a truly terrifying notion for the Israelites. Uh, But what do they do? Well, this causes them to press more fervently uh, uh, toward their trust in the Lord. Samuel, they say, uh, don't don't stop praying for us. And what happens? What happens? Well, we move from, from longing to returning to testing. Now, finally, to renewing in verses 10 to 14. In verse 10, we don't read about the Israelites setting up in battle array against their enemies. All we read is Samuel setting up a burnt offering to the Lord as the Philistines approach to fight against Israel. It's it's an offering that reflects the people's repentance. It's an offering that reflects uh, the people's reliance upon God to rescue them. They're worshiping the Lord, not staging for war. It's quite the posture of trust in an otherwise deadly situation. I mean, it sounds kind of weird. It would have certainly looked weird as the Philistines approach. What is going on? They're having a religious ceremony instead of preparing to fight us. But there they are offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And of course, the Lord grants Israel extraordinary victory. We read there that the Lord thundered with a great noise. The Lord thundered against the Philistines and threw them into such confusion that as the text goes on, they were easily overrun by Israel. Baal was often described, the god Baal was often described as the one who rides on the thunder. Here we have the Lord, what is He? The Lord is thunder itself, as He figuratively presents it here. He thunders against Israel's enemies, decimates them, and Israel goes out just to mop up the mess. Victory for them. And it's not just that the Lord granted them victory over their enemies, but we keep reading here how the Lord brought a period of relative relief from the Philistines in verse 13. Lord's hands against them during Samuel's ministry. And then we read that the, the places that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored. 
And not just that, but this peace extends to Israel uh, regarding their other enemies, these Amorites. So, so we get to this point, and what do we have? Well, we have victory over enemies, restoration of what is lost, peace in the context of their land. Victory, restoration, peace. And then Samuel sets up a stone. He sets up an Ebenezer, which means a stone of remembering in, in Hebrew. He sets up this visible marker that indicates that God has helped us. So, so, so you see, uh, what's happened is Israel has been in a position of defeat. They've lost even some of the land that God gave them to them in, in Canaan. They've been overrun by the enemies. All kinds of things have gone on here as they've indulged in sin. Sin brings disaster, and no doubt they're wondering, is this it for us now? Is God done with us? Or the fullness of promise, the promises that God has, has, has brought, uh, has spoken to us about, is that all over for us now? But here we see this is the Lord who doesn't leave His people and ultimately, and ultimately to languish. He's not only the God who takes their punishment like we saw in chapter 4. He's not only the God who defeats enemies while in exile in chapter 5. He's not just the God who returns to rise in glory among those who don't deserve it in chapter 6, but He's the God who helps. He's the God who brings His people from a place of defeat, not just to a place of victory, but to a place where what has been damaged is restored and what has been dangerous to our life of faith is removed. He's the God who renews life. Which, which is the great climax of this, of this four to sec, seven uh, section here in 1 Samuel, isn't it? This is, this is showing how, how God ultimately works and how He will ultimately work in Jesus when He comes. This prepares us to understand the ministry of Christ when we see it appear on the scene. If we think in chapter 4 terms, what does Jesus do? Jesus takes our punishment for us. If we think in chapter 5 terms, what does Jesus do? Well, He enters the exile of death and defeats Satan and sin and death. If we think in chapter 6 terms, what does Jesus do? Well, He returns, rising in glory to dwell by His Spirit among people like us who don't deserve it. And then, and then from His risen position in glory, what does Jesus now do? Well, He brings renewal to us even when we feel ourselves so defeated. This is the ministry of Christ to us and for us. Jesus brings victory, restoration, and peace. And this is not a surprise because this is how God reveals that He works. And no doubt this is probably how God is working in some of our lives right now. Are you currently longing for the Lord? Or are you in a place of returning to the Lord maybe? Are you currently being tested in that place of returning? And maybe for this season you're, you're through these things and you're in that place of rest and green pastures. You've been renewed. But what we know is the Lord brings us along in these ways because He's not the God who leaves those who are His. Instead, He's the God who helps. He brings us from defeat to renewed life. This is the gospel and this is who He is. And we thank Him for that truth. Let's pray. So Father, we ask that this would be an encouragement to our hearts. We ask that this truth would form how we understand Your work in our hearts. And we ask that ultimately we would be those who are who are returning, who are continually returning and being renewed, uh, even through times of testing, that we would be upheld and ultimately uh, be, be brought along uh, in Christ-like ways that reflect your good work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.